You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. But if you're staying in the room with us, good morning. My name is Brittany Moore and I am the lead pastor here and it is good to be with you the Sunday after Easter. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're tuning in. And if you're here in person, it's nice to see your smiling faces. Um, It's helpful if you fill out your Connect card even if you're online, because it allows us to know how to serve you, how to connect with you, how to come alongside. Um, We describe ourselves as a community or a family, but the only way we can really do that effectively is by knowing what's going on in one another's lives so that we can come and be part of that. So if you had a car accident this week and you need prayer or you're not feeling well or whatever has happened where we can just be here to support you, please let us know. The Connect card is one of the easiest ways to do that. And if you're joining us online or in person for the first time, I'm going to keep playing with this because it's very uncomfortable today. We are working through the Bible. And we started at the beginning of 2022, so it's been a year and change. And we have gotten through the first two scrolls of the Old Testament. Look at us. We're going so fast. Guys, you're going to blink and it'll be gone. Um, We are officially entering into the Ketavim this morning. I have a slide that'll pop up. So there are three scrolls. They were meant to be laid quite literally side by side, though they were quite long. And each of them have different parts to God's story. And the first two really tell the story of Israel. So this nation that God has chosen, which is specifically to help him come in pursuit of humanity, his kids. He, He selected Israel to be a love note to us and say, this is how I'm going to come and connect with you. And the third book, the Ketuvim, which we're going to jump into now, has a lot of wisdom and poetry literature in it. So you don't read it so much literally the way you'd read a historical book or the way you'd read a biography like today or the news, but you have to understand there's lots of symbols and metaphors and allegories and all these beautiful things that God uses to go back and enrich the first two scrolls. So we're not adding anything to the timeline from here on out, right? The people are back from exile, they're rebuilding Jerusalem, and they're waiting for Jesus. And there's not going to be anything additional added on to that. Instead, we're going to go back and look at the parts that we've already covered historically, which is going to be a lot of fun. And so this morning, we're going to jump into the book of Psalms. And it's a huge book. It's one of the bigger chunks of the Old Testament because it's a compilation of poems. But before we jump into all the details of Psalms, I want to think about something that is really special to me because I think it'll help us to frame or understand why Psalms was created and how to really understand it, how to interact with it as you're reading it both here on Sundays and then when you read it at home. Um, One of the best gifts that I have ever been given by my grandmother are her, her recipes. She has, we're Italian, I don't look it, I'm extremely pale, but if you look at my mother, you're like, ah, yes, that makes sense. Um, We have an Italian-Ukrainian heritage on my mom's side of the family, and a number of years ago, my grandmother started putting a couple recipe cards into different things that she would send me, Christmas cards and birthday cards, so that I could build my library of things that are meaningful to our family. And if you know an Italian, you know that there is a Christmas, or there's a cookie, rather, for every major holiday and event. Yes, Italians are always, there's always food at every celebration, but cookies in particular, I have one for Easter, we have one for Christmas, we have ones for weddings, there's just always some type of baked good that marks whatever you're celebrating. Um, But as much as my grandmother has blessed me with her recipe collection, 
a good chunk of some of the things she sends me have come from like the 50s and the 60s. So there's lots of like Cool Whip and other artificial food things in there. So I do make them, though a bit sparingly. And over the course of my lifetime, like all of the rest of us, I have had to look in recipe books digitally or in person at the library to find things to feed myself because I can't rely solely on my cookie collection. Um, it would not be healthy for any of us, though my kids would probably actually eat every meal if it was actually cookies, let's be honest. Um, but I would imagine that all of us have to do that at some point, right? Even if you don't cook often, every once in a while, you need to make something. You have to eat to live, even if you don't live to eat. And so you have to find a recipe. You have to gather things. You have to gather materials, put things together. And so I'm curious. I won't actually ask this. I'll let you talk to a neighbor. But I'm curious, what is the, your favorite thing that you're cooking or baking right now? And where did you get the recipe? So I'll give you 30 seconds. You can turn and tell a neighbor. And if it sounds delicious, write it down and send it to me. Bonus points if toddlers will eat it. I'll talk to you, Barb, because I'm right here. We are making, I found a honey mustard pretzel chicken bites. I cut it up and I coat it. And the boys love it. It's like the first time they'll eat chicken for me. So there we go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, or it's better with elbow macaroni. Mm -hmm. You only need like four different things for a family. Yeah. Ground beef. Okay, you ground it. Yep. Put sauteed onions. Uh huh. Ground it. You take a can of beef gravy. Okay. You pour it in the pan with everything. They don't drain the, don't drain the, gotcha. Yeah. Pour it over your noodles, onions, beef gravy, and beef macaroni, and it's called gourmet stroganoff. Oh. But in a different kind. I mean, I feel like my kids might actually eat that though. Yeah. Because they're not going to eat stroganoff with mushrooms. Hamburger helper existed. Thank you. I know it's really tempting to just. Be really excited about lunch now, because I am. Barb just gave me a recipe to try at home. Um, but we will continue into the book of Psalms. But I wanted to just make this point that there's something really interesting about recipes, right? You can read them in a digital blog. The people always put like 100 pages of content before it, and you're like, I just need the recipe. Or you can go to a library, or you can buy it on Amazon and get an actual cookbook. But the beautiful thing about that is you don't have to actually read the rest of the cookbook. You don't have to read the digital blog. With recipes, they stand alone. So you can go out and just Google exactly what you're looking for. I need to know how to cook broccoli or like millions of Americans over Easter weekend. How do you hard boil an egg? And you can find something that will allow you to do exactly what you need to do, and you can basically disregard the rest of it. And the interesting thing about that is many people have been taught to read the book of Psalms like that. We look at this compilation of poems. It's 150 poems. And for most of us, we think I can. It, it's an opportunity to see the rawness and the realness of humanity as they come in all of their emotions before God. And that's not a wrong read of what Psalms is. But we tend to say, OK, well, then I can just kind of pick and choose my way through it. I can find something that's really meaningful to me in the moment, like a recipe that I need for today. And I can engage it, and then I'm good. And I can just kind of discard the rest. But the reality is, this collection of 150 poems, each of the things that we find in here was written sometime between 
1,400 BC. So it spans basically the monarchy to the time of the like post-exile, and it was put together specifically and strategically in the time after the exile. It wasn't like randomly collaborated and pulled all together. It was specifically pulled together, most likely during the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah to serve a very specific point. And so you'll remember from all of our prophet talk and all the time that we were in those books that during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city was still in disrepair. The people who'd returned from Babylon were in the process of putting their cities back together, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, resettling, building their farms and their homes back up, and ultimately putting the temple back together. And that may sort of seem insignificant to us on this side of history and this side of Israel, if you will, but the temple wasn't just a building for the people of Israel, right? It's not even just like the, the church buildings are for us today. The temple was quite literally the access point with which they would go to to meet with God. Israel didn't know how to commune with him outside of the structure of the temple and the religious ceremonies that were held in the temple. That was basically where they would go to meet with him. So even if you didn't live in Jerusalem, specifically at times like Passover, everyone was expected to come to Jerusalem to worship and honor God because the temple was the access point. It was the meeting point. And that meant that for everyone who returned home from exile where the walls of the temple are destroyed, they have a very real question in their minds, which is how do we connect with God? How do we commune with him? Where do we go to meet with him, to say our prayers, to bring our sacrifices? There was no place, there's no gathering spot for God's presence to come home to. Remember Ezekiel saw, I'm gonna have to take these out. Ezekiel saw the presence of God leave the temple and go to Babylon to go be with the people in exile. And he promised at the end, he had another prophecy where God's presence returns to the temple. And so Israel is waiting for that moment to happen. But until that happens, how do we engage with God? What, what's the answer here? What do we do to have our religious traditions and our and our participation with him. And so as modern readers, if we're looking at the book of Psalms and reading it like a recipe book, we miss the reality that the book of Psalms was compiled strategically with each each poem specifically put in the place that it was in the place that it was put. All right, mom brain a little bit to be read from start to finish. The book of Psalms is a storybook. It's not a recipe book. It is actually meant to be read from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 in order because it tells the entire biblical narrative. And the reason why it does that is because it was created to become a literary temple for the people to use as a place to meet with God while their physical temple was in ruins. So what they did is the author says, I'm going to put together a place for you to encounter the living God through his story. And we know that his story is deeply interwoven with Israel's story. And as you read it, as you go back to the time of the monarchy, to the fall of Jerusalem, to the time post-exile when you're rebuilding, this place becomes a meeting spot for you to go both individually, as a family, and corporately. These prayers are things that will help you connect with the very presence of the living God while everything else that you know, while every other structure and form that you're used to is not currently functioning. It was a place of hope 
for them. And that's why the book is specifically structured the way that it is. So if you're reading through, if you've ever looked at the book of Psalms, you'll notice that it's broken into five primary sections or books. I've got a really cool graphic that'll go behind me that'll show you. Books one and two specifically refer to the time of the monarchy. Now, that doesn't mean that all the poems in this time were written in the monarchy, but a lot of them were, which means you'll see that David is the author of a lot of these two books because that's the specific time that it's referencing. Book three covers the fall of Jerusalem. So you'll have to notice that books one, two, and three then are, are usually pretty despairing. If you read through these, a lot of the Psalms are what we would call laments because this wasn't a really beautiful time. The monarchy was a really contentious time. People weren't following God. There was a lot of internal conflict and chaos. And so when David is writing, half the time he's running for his life. And so he's like, God, help me. I'm about to die. Smite my enemies. And that's what you'll find him saying. By the time we get to books four and five, Israel has returned home from exile. This is the time of the rebuilding. And a lot of what you'll find here is a, is a movement towards praise. Because while their city is still torn apart and the temple is still not put together, for them it's a season where there's a lot of hope because they believe in the prophetic things that the other prophets have, have foretold them and that these poems remind them of, that God is going to restore Israel. And so a lot of their poems move to these praises or victories or celebrations because that is what they believe God's going to be doing. And so you've got this beautiful little like temple that is formed out of these five books. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the walls of the temple. The first two psalms, which are the two that we're going to cover today, function as essentially a structure for the entire book. But ironically enough, they actually cover the entire biblical story as well. So honestly, it could have been a way that people would have met Jesus just in reading Psalms 1 and Psalms and Psalm 2. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to pray and we'll jump into Psalm 1. You're welcome to pull up a digital Bible. There are real Bibles in the seats underneath or the text will also be behind me. But Jesus, I am so amazed at the way that scripture is a lot like a constellation. When we are staring at a verse, it's so hard to see how it connects to all of the greater ones, but it does. And so I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you give us the ability to pan back and see the beauty of what you have done and what you have shared and what you are doing, um, that it would change us this morning. In Jesus' name. Psalms 1 and 2 are very, very short, so I'm going to actually read the entirety of them this morning as we unpack them. Psalm 1 starts, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's important, this part. And on his law, on God's law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. And again, if you just kind of pulled that out like a recipe, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's interesting, God. Like, there's some really good nuggets in there. But what this psalm is actually doing is bringing us back to the very beginning of the Bible. 
using the imagery of nature, this idea of the stream of living water, the tree that is forever flourishing, is meant to generate in the minds of the reader a return back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when humanity specifically dwelled in the Garden of Eden. And what was so profound about the time in the Garden of Eden, most, mostly, there's a lot of really profound things, but the most significant of that is that they shared this intimacy with God that had unfettered access, right? God and humanity walked side by side. They met face to face. They shared time together. And this is idea that relationship wasn't strained, but there was a beauty and a simplicity and an ease to it because there was no barrier in humanity's heart from receiving God's love. And so there was a freedom instead. They could live in the love of God. They could believe in his, that he was seeking their best. And they celebrated that by being able to just enjoy a unity and a harmony with him. Um, and that had to have been a pretty wild thing for Psalm 1 to even refer back to. Because remember, by the time these readers are, are coming together around these poems, Jerusalem is still in disrepair. The temple is in disrepair. And the only way that they have ever known how to engage with God is through highly structured places and systems, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, going to the temple. And so immediately the poet is saying, hey, remember that time before all of that when humanity could just be with God? And he's saying this to a people who are saying, how do we connect with God when the only thing we know is torn apart right now? And so the, the poet says, you don't need the temple. There was a time when humanity could just enjoy being in relationship with God. And you can actually experience that today, even while your temple is in disrepair. And how? He says, by meditating on the law. And the law was specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So you're going from Genesis through Deuteronomy and the idea was for people to just sit there and be immersed. The idea of meditating is the Hebrew word um, that means muttering. So it's just this constant thinking about where you're always gnawing on, meditating on, mulling on, wondering on, thinking through those first five books of the Bible. It's, it's just constantly in the forefront of your mind. And this is what God had always instructed Israel to do, not ironically. He said, if you want to have a relationship with me, I will give you a form and a structure, but at the core of what I'm inviting you to is to know my heart. And the best way you can discover my heart in this season of time is through the law, because here you find me protecting equality. You find me defending what is good and true and right. What you find in the law is God's definition of good and evil and what he's inviting humanity back into. He says, trust me, don't try and define good and evil on your own, but meditate on my law and let it change you so that you begin to understand good and even good and evil through my perspective and so he's inviting these people post-exile back to that which just mirrors exactly what he said in deuteronomy 6 4 to 9 which is the shema which is exactly what israel was supposed to be doing this whole time was meditating on god's goodness on his law and so he says you can go back to that and if you do it will empower you to have relationship with me even while the temple is pulled apart. And ironically, not ironically, perfectly designed, the next five books, if you take Psalm 1 and 2 as almost like a table of contents, the rest of Psalms is meant to mirror or be an accompaniment to those five books. 
It's a, basically a prayer guide that says there's five books of the Torah, there's five primary books of the Psalms, and they are meant to help guide you through your journey of honoring the law by giving you a prayer language so that you can actually honor my heart. And the beautiful thing about it is it's taking away the mask, right? There's a lot of religion and structure and system that Israel was used to, and Psalms is raw, and it's honest, and it's painful to read at times. And sometimes it's joyous, and you, you are exalting and praising and worshiping God with, with this exuberance. But the reality is humanity in Psalms isn't wearing a mask. And so God is saying, you can engage with me in intimacy as you meditate on my law, and you're honest about the struggles and the joys of what that means. I'm not asking you to put together a beautiful temple and a beautiful system. Those things are a way that you can connect with me before Jesus, which we'll get to in Psalm 2. But that is not the primary way that I want you to connect with my heart. I'm yearning to go back to Eden with you. My hunger is to be back to a place of unfettered access with you. That's what I created you for. And that's what I want to return to. And so Psalm 1 essentially tells the returned exiles, you can enjoy a relationship with God that doesn't require that physical temple. You can enjoy his presence by gathering around his story because as you engage in his story, as you come honestly before the Lord, what you're going to do is discover God's true character. You're going to see his faithfulness when you were unfaithful. You're going to see his goodness when you were not good. You're going to see his radical love and his wild generosity when you were stingy and when you were unloving. And as you see his true character and your own, it opens your eyes to actually see God himself. Because most of us, our struggle lies in not trusting God's character as being actually good or actually loving or actually for us. We have a barrier in us that almost resists who he actually is. We're afraid, and so we don't draw near. And so what Psalm 1 does is it preps them to say, this book is going to help you draw near to the Lord. You're going to see his goodness. You're going to be reminded as you read through his story of how faithful he has been. And you don't have to put a mask on to get close in that moment. In fact, you're encouraged to come just as you are with all of your concerns, because as you bring them to him, he allows you to find this beautiful meeting place where you are authentically yourself, and he loves you in that moment, and then freedom is birthed. And so that psalm, Psalm chapter 1, begins to bring or invite people back into the paradigm that God always intended for humanity to have with him, starting back in Genesis 1. And what it does in Psalm chapter 2 is it elaborates on how that is going to come to full fruition. Because obviously, living by the law hasn't worked super well for Israel, hence the exile. They know that they've really had a hard time meditating on the law, following the Shema. And so we get to Psalm chapter 2, and this is essentially moves us on from the time of uh, Eden and being in the garden to the downfall of humanity to our rebellion and rejection of God and then his solution to kind of bring things back back to right the ship. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which is Jesus, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And this is, again, that idea of we want to define good and evil ourselves. We don't want to live under 
God's definitions of good and evil because we want to have our own independence and we think we know how to do it better. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your, pos- your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, which is serve him with an admiration, with, a, with an awesomeness, with a I honor you because you do know better than I do. Serve the Lord with that kind of fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, which is an idea of honor Jesus, surrender to Jesus, bow to King Jesus, um, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we find the second half, or really the, the rest of the biblical story, laid out in Psalms 2, which is really a, po- a poetic reflection back on 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that particular part of the Bible, David and the Lord are having a conversation. And essentially, we see the pain and destruction that has been caused by humanity rejecting God. And so in our arrogance, we're trying to live like we can on our own. We think we know best. And ultimately, that always just ends in some type of chaos in our lives because we don't know best. Whenever we step outside of God's good boundaries, we're inviting some type of brokenness into our story. And God knows that. And he says, even though you have run away from me, even though you don't trust me, I still love you. I'm still faithful to you. I'm still in pursuit of you. I want to have those walks in the Garden of Eden again. That's what I created you for, and I'm never going to give up on my original intention for creation. And so I'm going to make a promise to David that is going to be for all of humanity, and it's a promise to send a Messiah, a king who will forever sit on the throne in Jerusalem, who will come from the line of David, and this Messiah, this Savior, is going to set the world right again. This is King Jesus, and this is what he does through Easter, right? Um, In 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it's this promise, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne, God's throne, Jesus' throne, shall be established forever. And what I find so fascinating about 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that we're reading about this Messiah promise, but the temple motif is not lost in Psalm chapter 2. It's still something that the original readers would have understood, that God is still saying, you don't need a temple to encounter me. Because the dialogue that God is having with David in in 2 Samuel 7 is about the temple. At this point in the monarchy, David is in a palace, Jerusalem is being built up, and God's Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is still dwelling in the tabernacle, still dwelling in the tent And David's like, this isn't okay, God. I can't be living in this beautiful palace. We're experiencing a time of increasing peace. Our enemies are slowly being put to rest around us. And you're living in a tent. This doesn't feel good to me. I want to build you a house. And God says, that's a beautiful thing. And I appreciate that you want to do that for me, David. Your legacy is to bring peace to this place. It's to bring peace to the promised land, which means there's a lot of blood on your hands. And I'm not really... You know, you're not going to be the guy to build my house. You're going to establish peace in this place, and your son Solomon, he's going to build the house for me. But that house is never going to be more important than this promise that I'm giving you 
that I'm going to set someone from your family tree on the throne of Israel forever. And I love that because I wasn't expecting to encounter that when I was reading 2 Samuel 7. I went looking for the Messiah and kind of backtracked up to read the beginning of the chapter and found the temple and realized that all along, Israel has been so dependent on these external structures to help them connect with God because that's all that they know. And that's what God gave them. It wasn't like that was wrong. He gave them those external structures. But the intention behind those external structures was always to get them back to personal intimacy with him like we have in Eden. And so the physical temple was never meant to be Israel's primary access point to God. It was a stand-in for Jesus. It was a temporary holding place where God said, you can meet with me in this physical place until we can go back to having our own Eden-like moments on earth where we can have face-to-face connections and you don't run away from me. You don't die because you're impure. You're not running out of fear and trembling like you see Israel in all of their interactions with God in the Old Testament. But instead, you come before me again with unfettered access and joy and peace. And so this is exactly what Jesus does for humanity. And this is important because we live on this side of Christ. We don't have to live like we're still exiles living in this wandering place where we don't know if we have connection with God. Unfettered access has been restored to us today and now through Jesus. The beauty of what happened the moment Jesus breathed his last on the cross was the temple, which had been rebuilt, not in its full glory, but it had been rebuilt, the temple was set up to be a layer of access. So you had the outer, you have the outer walls where everybody could be outside the temple, and then you have the courts, and then you have increasing layers of basically purity that are required till you get into the holiest place, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant lives and where you've got incense and the priest only goes in there once a year to make full atonement for the nation of Israel. And the rest of the year, everybody lives outside of that space, the priest included. And the guy that went in to make that sacrifice had to wear bells on his ankles in case he wasn't actually, hadn't like made himself pure before the Lord and died and they could like pull him out. Um, So it was a really, that idea of unfettered access wasn't something that they were used to or expecting or ready for. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? He says, um, Jesus shouted out and his spirit was released, meaning he died. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And what that symbolized, whether the people wanted to recognize it or not, was God saying, come on in. We can have unfettered connection. You have access to the throne. You can come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you don't have to worry about making yourself a certain way because Jesus has covered you. His death has been that restoration point that says, you have been living behind these barriers, feeling like you are not pure enough to approach God. And when Jesus died, he covers that so that we can say, God, you do love me. And I can now approach you. I have been made clean through Christ. And so I can, be, I can walk into the holiest of holy places. I can walk into the throne room. And God does not run away from me or smite me or, or try and kick me out. He invites me to come and sit on his lap on the throne. He says, you're my kid. And if any of you have a good relationship with some adult figure who functioned as a parent, you feel comfortable in their presence. You, you, those should be the people you snuggle up to. I laugh at the end of the day when 
we're reading books with the boys and I've got Asher usually in his carrier because then I've got like Judah on one side, like leaning over me and smushing us. And I've got Bo who's getting bigger every day on the other side of us. And that's the kind of intimacy that God invited us back into through Christ. Where we don't have to have any fear when we come before him. We don't have to have any type of trepidation. We can walk right in and say, you are my king. I respect you and I bow before you but then I climb up into your lap because I am safe here. And that's what you are asking me to do. Um, and the beauty of that is it, it keeps going. This temple motif continues to carry through the rest of the scripture because what we find is that Jesus says, I'm gonna go back to heaven. I'm gonna go back and be with my father and I will come and return and finish the work that I started. But until that time, I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you. And what the spirit does when he comes to dwell within us is it means God makes residence in us and we become the new temples of God. The temple was no longer an external structure, but we become that place because God comes and dwells within us. Ephesians 2, 20 to 22 says, together then we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself, and we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. God goes from taking that external thing and he says, I'm gonna make my residence back with you just like in Eden, and he has, and he has. You know, I wasn't entirely sure how God wanted us to land today's message, but the only thing that I kept reflecting on was this concept of access. We have access to the throne. God has chosen, if we bow to King Jesus, if he has become the Lord of our lives, if, if we have chosen to serve him and not ourselves, he says, I come and I take up residence in you and you become my dwelling place. You become my temple. We have internally these Eden, the opportunity to experience Eden again. And I don't know that we always recognize that we can do that. In fact, I think a lot of times we're still tempted to believe that we have this disconnect from God or that we have to approach a certain way or we need an external structure in place in order for us to be, um, in order for us to commune with him, honestly. You know, I have to go to church on Sunday morning. If I don't go on Sunday morning, God's going to be mad at me and I'm not going to be able to connect to him all week. Or I have to read the Bible this amount of times for this long, this way. And if I don't do it exactly like that, God's not going to talk to me. Or if I don't do X, Y, and Z or go to these places, I'm not going to be able to have a fruitful relationship with God. And he says, why are you looking outward? I worked so hard to get back inside of you. I worked so hard so that you and I could have unfettered connection so that you wouldn't have to go or be anywhere special, but you could commune with me every single moment of the day where you could, be eight, you could approach the throne of heaven at any given part in the day, whether you're in the shower or driving or paying your bills or cooking or going to sleep at night. Some of my best conversations happen when I am getting ready in the morning because it's the only time when my kids are not standing right next to me. And at first I was like, God, this is kind of weird. Like, I'm getting ready. And he's like, why? I made you. I created you. You have no shame before me. I'm right here and you are right in the middle of the throne room even as you stand in your own bathroom. 
Do we understand the power of what that means? That you do not have to wait to talk to the king of kings. You don't have to do anything special to talk to or bring your concerns or worries to the Lord of Lords. You have unfettered access to God all the time. And the invitation I think he's making this morning is to take it. Sometimes we allow our own shame or guilt from who we used to be or what we did this week to make us feel like we have to approach really gently or, or maybe we can't, we have to shield ourselves. And God says, come before me just as you are in this moment. I want to see you exactly as you are. I don't need you to look better or sound better or dress yourself up. I already know what the week has looked like. And I'm inviting you to feast with me at the throne room of heaven. We have access that we are not taking. And so we're struggling. If we're feeling really lonely or really disconnected or really confused, or we don't feel like there's any momentum in our spiritual walk, or we're like, I'm stuck in a rut. God's saying, you are invited to come and dine with me in the throne room of heaven. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's an idea that we are supposed to be living in the throne room with God while our physical body dwells on earth. But so often we still live in the circumstances of earth and we occasionally pop up and say, hey, I am really sick and I need healing. Or, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do to pay this bill. Or, hey, this relationship conflict is really huge. Can you help me figure it out? And God says, why do you continue to live here and let here define your reality when you could be living in the throne room with me, which will totally change and shape the way that you engage on earth? You will begin to engage on earth the way that Jesus did. If we live in heaven with him, in the throne room with him, which is really just right here in our very midst, like Eden, it changes the way we see the world. We are no longer these paupers. We're no longer these homeless, orphaned children, but we are people who are part of the king's family. And we have the authority of the king. We have his signet ring. Jesus is our brother. And that empowers us to live with victory and not be defeated constantly. We have an opportunity to live in heaven while we dwell on earth. I don't know what's better than that. I can't add to that. That is the ultimate. It means that at no point are we ever alone and at no point is hope cut off from us because we are connected to the creator of the universe. And so if you have a question I, I remember a friend of mine who works in the science field was saying, I have this really big problem and I didn't know how to solve it. And then it occurred to me that God created science and that I could ask him. And so he did. And he's like, I'm just going to put this experiment before the Lord. And the Lord gave him wisdom to know how to move through the next few steps of that project. And I thought, we live with access to heaven, with access to everything. That business plan you have to write, that, that relationship you have to fix, that solution that you're seeking for anything all we have to do is ask 
And I laughed because when we were praying this morning, I was like, God, where are you going? And then all through worship, Dan's like, guys, just ask. And I'm like, God, you are clearly doing a thing here. So I want to move into ministry time. If you're able, you are invited to stand because I really feel like the Lord has opened up access this morning. And it's not that the access is new. The reminder is new that the access is there. And he's saying, you have things you need to talk to me about. You have things you need. Maybe it is healing. Maybe it is finances. Maybe it is peace. Maybe it is, I don't know. I don't have to keep giving you ideas. You already know what it is that you are needing from God. But have you asked? Have you actually said, God, I am really tired of my family being sick. That was us. <laughs> Four weeks and, and counting, we're like, we are done. We, have, we are tapping out. We need you to breathe fresh life into our home, into our lungs. And the Lord heard that prayer because he always hears my prayers. He always hears your prayers because you have access to the throne. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I, I actually think he wants to start with a little bit of an imaginative prayer exercise. This is a spiritual discipline to help you form a concrete memory around what it feels like, looks like, sounds like to engage with God in the throne room. And your throne room is not, probably not going to look like anybody else's in this space. But from that point, as we do that exercise, I then want to invite you to be able to go further with the asking. I want to encourage you to be bold, be honest, be raw with him because he receives you as you are. So Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence this morning. Together we are the temple, forming that temple with you as our cornerstone, Jesus, because you dwell within each one of us. And so you're here and you're moving and you desire for us to encounter you this morning. 